Good morning and welcome to the first Monday call of 2024. Brought to you by NZ Funds. I'm Stefan Clark, Chief Client Officer. Many commentators are predicting share market returns to be flat this year, pointing to potential risks such as the United States election and growing tensions in the Middle East. At NZ Funds, we believe the data supports a more optimistic outlook and that many of the negative headlines um, are a classic sign of scepticism often seen at this point in the cycle. To use the famous quote from Sir John Templeton, bull markets are born in pessimism, grow in scepticism, mature in optimism and die in euphoria. This morning we're joined by Mark Brooks, Principal and Portfolio Manager at the firm to discuss why NZ Funds believes the global economy has mostly healed from the disruption of COVID, what the United States election may mean for investment markets and our outlook for gold and crypto, among other important topics. Mark, it's fantastic to have you here. Welcome. Um, Let's start with the role of investment management firms. And we often sort of touch on this in, in passing, but remind us why is um, why, why do firms like NZ Funds exist and how does it fit in to the broader financial market? Exactly. It's a great question and, and too often one which we kind of skip or our industry skips and go straight into talking about investments and returns, et cetera, so, or the outlook. But if we step back, ultimately, yeah, at its simplest, what we're trying to do is the default for, for pretty much everybody is cash. And cash is useful in the very short short term, but over the long term, it's not a consistent way to create wealth. You Ultimately, you need to take some risk. And you know, if we look back through history, New Zealanders have historically taken risk in the property market. And you know, that is an asset that will do uh, typically around sort of 8%, something like that, 7 to 8%. And if you hold that over very long periods of time, it has the potential. If you're on, owning an asset that it generates 8%, that's going to double broadly every 10 years. So you know, the important part there is that gives you the ability to take $100 today, turn it into 200 in 10 years' time, and then turn it into 400 in 20 years' time, etc. Now, our role as fund managers is essentially to pull people out of cash and will encourage people to move out of that stable asset cash and to take some risk if their horizon is long enough. And ultimately, yeah, <clears throat> property for New Zealanders has been a, a good choice, but there are other options. And yeah, financial markets are a much more liquid option that gives an ability to generate actually better returns than property, ultimately, shares have over time. And yeah, the key is encouraging people to move out of cash, to, to grab, you know, to access assets that have an ability to compound over time and ultimately take that $100 into $200 into $400. That is, is ultimately our role. A laudable goal. <laughs> but, I mean, and it's an important one, right? Because um, for people to prepare for retirement, which most savers are doing, and also for people in retirement um, wanting to think about and secure their future, having... Um, you know, reduced perhaps uh, they're working, um, making sure that you're actually generating um, returns on your assets uh, appropriate with your risk profile and risk capacity and time horizon and all of that is is is, is very important. Exactly. Um, you can't sustain the living standards that you otherwise would want and, and could potentially have. So thank you. That's something that's a, a really um good opening to why we do the way, um, I guess, as an industry and our firm as part of that industry, what we do. And so let's talk about the global economy over the last year, particularly, and where we think um, it's going. And, you know, our outlook and um, the outlook into the future at this point in time is, is very important. Decisions get made on it. And so take us through how the NZ Funds investment team are um, looking at what's happened and, and importantly, where we're going now. Yeah, and I think I ultimately I might even go a touch further back. Yeah, the last three years, four years has really been all about COVID and, and I think that's the right way to frame it. In terms of the global economy had this massive sudden stop in terms of COVID uh, and, you know, that was in 20, 
2020. And, and as we went through 20 and 21, the response from governments and central banks was correctly this massive amount of stimulus to make sure their global economy, the stop was only temporary. And from our point of view, what was really interesting in that process was you sat here in, in late 2020 in, in New Zealand, we'd had an initial lockdown, uh, the borders were closed, so yeah, <clears throat> um, people weren't coming and going, but it, life was pretty much back to normal. We didn't have COVID in the community. And it really sort of said to us that, yeah, people are resilient. They get back to life very quickly. And yeah, all this, the, the super low interest rates and the stimulus in terms of uh, government spending was probably going to overdo things in terms of inflation. We didn't realise quite, or well, we probably didn't anticipate how high that was going to be. But essentially that meant you had uh, this you know, massive burst of, uh, of stimulus come to 2022 and even bits of 23, really you had sort of uh, post-sugar blues is probably a, a good way to put it, um, where yeah, that stimulus uh, impact wore off. And really valuations, as we've talked so much, uh, reset materially, be it yeah, interest rates much higher, so reset bond valuations, share markets fell pretty significantly in different places, property markets fell. So really anything, mainly because interest rates were heading so much high, everything reset in value. The nice thing now is I think yeah, our, our view is very much that yeah, that healing process, the, the post-sugar blues, the, the hangover, for, for want of a better word, is has passed. And you are actually, the economy is working through that as healing and is actually looking in pretty good shape in terms of that reset that's happened. And if we look at, you know, I, I suppose the, the two um, primary uh, points we'd sort of point to is one, things like, you know, things like supply chains. Yeah, you know, really supply chains have um, materially improved. Yeah, you know, there are still issues in things like the Red Sea in terms of what's happening in the Middle East. But supply chains to, to and from the US, here from China, etc., you can get those goods much quicker and much cheaper than what you did. Back to almost, almost back to, and in some cases, better than back to pre-COVID. So that's a real positive. And then the other one is inflation, inflation which uh, I'm sure you'll have a question or two on. Yeah, I mean, obviously inflation rears its head in sort of different ways, and we experience it with um, goods that we purchase more routinely, you know, obviously um, food and petrol and, and so forth. But um, it is declining. And um, it is normalising. And uh, there's now talk of central banks expecting um, inflation to be within their target bands in the you know, um, short to medium term. How do you see the, the, the process from here in terms of inflation normalisation? And then what does that mean for interest rates and then in turn for how the economy works and how asset prices respond? Um. As often, yeah, we you will hear us talk. We we are very focused on the U.S. economy. It's the world's largest economy. It does, and in, certainly in terms of interest rates, it does tend to lead where the rest of the world moves. And if we look at inflation, there it has been actually it's come down a lot. It's it's in some respects the speed at which it's come down has been quite surprising. And if we go back to sort of the early days of inflation back in sort of yeah 2021. There was a lot of discussion that that inflation was transitory. It was going to be a very temporary uh, event, and it would come down quite. Whilst it was going up quickly, it would come down quickly. Now that didn't prove to be the case. Inflation moved much higher than many expected, and it stuck around for a while. But yeah, it is looking like yeah, it's really as a as a classic sort of economist point. Um, the, the issue of transitory, that was just a time frame discussion. Yeah, it is. Maybe it is transitory, and we are seeing declines uh, pretty significantly. And, you know, in, if we, again, if we're sort of focusing on the US, uh, in terms of some of their core measures, their headline number is sort of, you know, 3.7%. So well down from the nines they saw at a peak. But some of their core numbers, which central banks like to look at because it takes out things like the volatile numbers like sort of yeah, oil and things of that nature. Uh, the last six months have been running somewhere even below their 2% tar target. So that really suggests they've got 
scope from an interest rate perspective. You know, they've got the, had their foot hard on the brake. Uh, they've got an ability to to lift that off just because, you know, basically the inflation has got very close or towards their uh, their targets. Um, <clears throat> in New Zealand, a little bit different. You know, inflation is proving to be slower, certainly on the goods side, you know, the what they call the tradables here. So anything that has competition from offshore, uh, that is falling very fast. In the last quarter, it was actually negative in terms of the inflation. So we had a little bit of deflation in, in offshore traded goods. The domestic stuff, uh, the, tr- the, <clears throat> the non-tradables as they call them, are proving to be more sticky. Rents are, are an issue. They're running at about 4.5% and, and quite stable. Uh, but again, you know, we've seen, and, and much of that possibly is a reflection of uh, a large, move, large immigration into New Zealand, which is driving demand. But equally, you know, I think you know, as some of that rolls through, there is real potential in New Zealand that as we go sort of towards the middle half of the year, that even some of that non-tradable inflation will surprise on the downside and actually, uh, yeah, again, puts the Reserve Bank in a situation where rather than talking tough like they are now at the moment, they might actually change their tune and start uh, by the middle of the year, start cutting rates. And I guess um, that leads through into mortgage prices and leads through into mortgage costs and leads through into affordability and it leads through into um, how other goods are priced too. Exactly. Okay, so at the end of last year, um, towards the end, we had a call, a Monday call, where we talked about how, I guess it's fair to say, how wrong economists got it in terms of the global growth expectations for 2023. And then um, at the end of the year, we looked back and said, wow, um, I think what did we land in it? Global growth at 2.6, I think was the number. Um, how, how do you see that today? Has anything changed over the last few months? And, and where does the outlook forward um, with rates coming down that should be supportive? So, you know, how, how do you think about, you know, the, I guess the, the broader growth prospect and and obviously within that there's a whole bunch of big things happening like US elections there's some geopolitical tensions um, there's you know uh, uh, China facing some really big challenges um, take us through that yeah there's a lot there I might go back a little bit you know you sort of touched on last year and expectations basically at the beginning of last year the expectations certainly in terms of the commentators was that uh, you know global recession was almost a given uh, as you point out it turned out that actually growth remained remarkably robust. Uh, and the nice thing was that actually, yeah, it depends on hit different markets in different ways, but generally from a, a global share market perspective, actually returns were, were pretty positive. Yeah, we, we enjoyed, generally markets enjoyed a very strong last quarter. Uh, and it did mean that, yeah, things like the, the KiwiSaver growth portfolio, which uh, had a difficult start to the year, finished the year up close to 13%. So that's a pretty good year and really reflects that one underlying economic growth in the, in the world was much better than expected. And actually, as we've talked, you know, inflation's coming down. So you did see those signals from uh, central banks start to uh, say, well, actually, we can take our foot off the brake. So there was that optimism. I think, again, yeah, our starting point for this year is very much that as you, as you pointed out in, in your intro, the Sir John Templeton quote, we do see this as the start of a, a, a more positive bull market style cycle. Uh, we still think the world is pretty skeptical about that. And actually, in, a, in many respects, that's good. Um, in terms of expectations out there, interesting enough, expectations for, and these are sort of yeah, market return expectations, the average expectation on the S&P 500 is for it to go up 1% this year. Not particularly aggressive. And and the Europe's not not very different. Again, sort of 1.1, 1.3%. Uh, the high expectations are still not actually that high, sort of up sort of 6 or 7%. Uh, and there's a bit of a tail on the other side. You know, the, the most bearish commentators are expecting moves of sort of minus 15, minus 16 so in, in that sense, there is still that uh, scepticism out there. Uh, if we look at things like you know, the expectation of recession, broadly expectation is about 50% in the US. So they're still pretty high. Um, against that, you know, we think there are some, some really interesting reasons to be much more positive or to say that, yeah, um, 
that expectation of recession or, or very average outcomes is in price now. And we think there's actually a potential that uh, things might surprise on the, on the positive side. Okay. And so um, obviously those expectations there um, of share market growth or share market returns. So in real terms, um, they're even more negative, right? Because you've got to um, yep. back out your inflation component. So um, that, you know, that, that's not a particularly, if you believe that, not a particularly compelling investment case as it stands today. But um, there's a whole bunch of other things supporting it. So take us through what are the, the, the factors that are driving you to this um, perspective that is, you know, different from what I guess some of the naysayers or people thinking, um, uh, having an alternative view. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where, where do, you, where do you, what is it that you, that you sort of believe support that position? Well, I think the first two are, are clearly, as, as we talked about, one, inflation is coming down. Yep. That is a positive. And certainly the, the wheels of global trade have freed up. So from that point of view, a lot of the, uh, um, <clears throat> restrictions out there that were, yeah, interest rates were were weighing, or the the, the concern of much higher interest rates were weighing on uh, activity and, and expectations, and yeah, the reality of global activity and and uh, supply chain pressures have dissipated. There are still issues in the in the Red Sea, etc., but broadly, yeah, out of the dominant uh, production being China, that's that's gone. So we see that as being positive. Two, you know, we talked about that sort of valuation reset. Valuations have reset. And, you know, again, from a, from a lay New Zealand perspective, you know, I sort of, you know, come back to the property market. We saw massive increases in property prices in, in uh, 2020 and 21. Came back in late 21, 22, and in some cases quite materially. And, you know, valuations have reset at, at levels which maybe aren't super cheap, but certainly seem much more balanced and inappropriate. Uh, uh, and we see that in, in the share market. Yeah, there are parts of share markets around the world that are, uh, that are not cheap. Yeah, you know, Magnificent Seven, which we might get onto a bit later. Um, <clears throat> the, some of those massive tech stocks in the US are not cheap, but they're li- delivering the returns at the moment. Once you go away from that, uh, in many areas, share markets are very much at long-term um, average valuations or indeed actually quite cheap. So that says the starting point for us is actually there's not a lot of positivity priced in or not an undue amount. Then you go to interest rates and anything sensitive to interest rates. And you know, again, interest rates have come down a little from the highs we saw sort of September, October, but broadly they're the highest level in 20 years. Uh, and from that point of view, you're getting your starting point of being the highest level in 20 years is, is, is really encouraging. So I think from you know, those two aspects, valuation and, and certainly the starting point, we're positive. Uh, there's are other, are some other interesting ones, which you know, like I think the key one which might surprise many people is actually we see this year as the year of elections. And that is going to create a lot of angst and a lot of noise. But actually, um, we see that as being a positive catalyst, especially in the US. And as I said, where the US goes, markets tend to follow. So when you say it's positive elections, what does that mean um, for investment markets? And um, how often is it positive? Yeah. Because, I mean, um, it's probably a a thing of degrees. Exactly. Um, I, I think the key part of our process across really all aspects is is very much trying to look back and, and understand what is the context we're talking about. And in the case of, say, a company, we will go back through time and say, well, what margins has this business been able to reliably or historically earn? Has it had 5% margins in the bad times and it has had a 20% margins in the good times? What is it doing today? Equally, what are people willing to pay for that business in terms of the multiple? Are they willing to pay 10 times multiple in the bad times and 20 times in the good times? So that gives us a box to say, this is the context where we are now and how do our expectations differ? Um, in a, it's a bit of a long intro to say, in the same way, if we look at the performance of US markets, and <clears throat> very much this is work 
undertaken by um, our external manager, Fisher Investments, out of California. And they have spent a lot of time looking at the performance of US uh, election years and share market performance. And the interesting thing about, or the nice thing, I suppose, about the US election uh, and political system is it is a four-year system. Um, there's no ability for, well, there's really no ability for an early election like there is in ours, um, our process, and those election dates are effectively baked in stone. And, you know, they looked all the way back to 1925 where they sort of had reliable data. And 83% of the time, elections are actually positive. Well, sorry, 83% of the time, share markets are positive in election years. So, yeah, that's clearly you get years. There are years like with a large external outside forces. 2008 was an election year in the US. Even 2000 was an election year. So they've sort of decent negative years there. But um, if you think about it, and, and especially, you know, it's, it's quite topical now in New Zealand, a new government tends to be focused on action and look to make most of their significant uh, promises and, and policies, bring them through in that very early days. And we're seeing that now in some of the actions of the new government here. In the US, well, as, as governments get towards the end of the term, they've done a lot of that and they've become more focused basically on getting re-elected. And yeah, more so in the US, we have a midterm structure where often the president will lose uh, <clears throat> lose control of the House, so really has much less ability to, to bring in new legislation. So yeah, broadly, that's, so you can summarise that by saying that markets kind of like inactivity on part of governments, and, and often they're quite, as the research has shown, 83% of the time they are actually positive in those years, despite there being a bit of noise. Well, some interesting research we've done is if you look at um, New Zealand and you actually look at those US election years, we've got a very high correlation to the US market performance. Probably not a great surprise, but again, if you're expecting the US market to be positive this year, it actually suggests New Zealand will be. Going back to 1972, every time the US market has been positive in an election year, we have been as well except for one year, which was 1998. That year, the US, up was, US was up about 16%. We were down 20 basis points. So for us, it's a, there's going to be plenty of noise around elections, and there's lots of elections this year. Somewhere, I think, around north of 50% of the global of the world's population is going through some form of election. So that says to us there is going to be noise and there's going to be concern. But often, actually, at the outcome, once that settles, you end up with a positive year. And in the end, what really matters is whether corporates are generating strong returns and profits, right? And um, policy settings can be helpful over a, a longer run. I mean, we've talked in the past about how elections vary in the very short term, don't seem to have a huge amount of effect, but over medium term, clearly they do. And um, as policy settings change and, um, and new, new agendas get rolled out, um, yeah, but, it, but it is that corporate piece, right, for, for investors. Are they generating um, strong profits? Is there growth in the system? Is there innovation? You know, their productivity yeah. improvements? And, and I think, sort of yeah, at a, at a very short horizon, we are seeing that. We've definitely seen corporate earnings coming through. Um, interesting enough, Meta, Facebook had great numbers the other day. Um, seemed to have jettisoned the, the Meta world and gone back to being an advertising business, and that's really working because the economic activity has been more robust and it's coming through in corporate earnings. There are a couple of really, I mean, we'll talk about Magnificent Seven, which includes Meta but um, shortly, but there are a couple of really strong point data points out of the US, which I believe are providing um, us with confidence and others too. Um, uh, Non-residential construction is up meaningfully and employment numbers were extremely strong. Take us through why they are so important. Look, I think, Basically, it just says there's breadth of activity in the economy. Certainly, um, one of the driving forces, uh, both in the US and here, has been government activity, and government activity has been strong and, and continues to, to be so. Uh, in terms of non-residential construction in the US, that's been growing at you know, around about 20% per annum. You know, they, like us, have, a bit of, have an infrastructure deficit that they're looking to work through. 
And, you know, that's creating activity. It's creating that sort of baseline um, <clears throat> growth. And, and to a degree, you are seeing it coming through in uh, job growth. You know, they had uh, actually kind of a blowout number on Friday. The expectation for sort of monthly job growth was about 185,000 people. It came in 350,000 people. Um, yeah, probably at the margin does question whether uh, there's risks of a, maybe the economy's running a bit too hot from the, the central bank's point of view that some of their inflation, their relaxed stance towards inflation might be tested. But it says again, you've got an economy that is, yeah, after 500 basis points of interest rate rises, you're not seeing weakening in the labour market there. So, uh, yeah, certainly from a share market perspective, that is quite positive at this point in time that says there's probably a degree of growth that's coming uh, down the pipe, which people are not expecting. Cool. So let's talk numbers for a second. Share markets. Um, you mentioned earlier that at the end of the, you know, the 2023 year was a positive for share markets yeah. and that translated into um, returns for growth investors, including within the NZ Funds KiwiSaver scheme. How has um, more broadly the share market um, performed? And um, and tell us about the valuation that, you know, how you think about valuation in the US and why it's normalised and what, what that means for investors and the returns here um, they they um, can expect. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, first point there, and, and it's definitely something need, people need to be cognizant of is, is actually returns last year, whilst positive, were really... Um, there was a large range. Um, yeah, at one hand, you had the, the New Zealand share market that basically was up 2%. On the other hand, you had <clears throat> yeah, the, the S&P 500 that was up sort of 20-plus you know, percent. And then you had some of the tech names that were up 50 or more. So you had a very disparate uh, performance, generally positive. Well, actually, then you got a sort of uh, China and the Asian number of the Asian markets, and they were quite heavily negative sort of get onto that in a second. Uh, but it does mean that actually if we look through many of those different markets, um, you've probably got to start with Magnificent Seven. That drove a lot of the US return last year. And yeah, those names, I won't go through all seven, but yeah, you can very much sort of <clears throat> expect who it is. Yeah, it's the Apples, the Microsofts, NVIDIA, the chip maker who make yeah, computer graphics cards, then Meta, et cetera. Um, those names definitely saw growth and they were re rewarded for that. Um, the other 493 had a much more muted time. And that's really been that theme. And I, and I suppose at its simplest, if you probably want to try and boil it down, in an environment of higher interest rates, an old world business tends to be, old world's probably too strong, a, a more... Um, traditional traditional that's the word I was looking for <laughs> traditional business has assets that require you know their capital they have, require more capital than a technology company that can produce a, another piece of software at sort of an instance notice with no spending so they require capital and they ultimately will look to have some some funding and debt for that so as interest rates increase that becomes more challenging for them equally those more traditional businesses, and I think New Zealand's a very good example of that. If you go to a Spark or a Contact Energy or something like that in New Zealand, yeah, big household names, very much they're actually their top line growth is actually quite dependent on what the economy is doing. What is revenue? Their revenue growth follows GDP growth. If you're a Microsoft or something like that, yeah, you tend to generate your own growth. So in an environment where Global growth has been slow. That has weighed much more on those names. And you've seen that in terms of, sort of performance of New Zealand to a lesser degree Australia. Certainly small cap names in, in the US have, have performed very similar to New Zealand, yeah, basically flat over the last year. Uh, and Europe and is quite similar to that. So there's been quite disparate performance in an environment of more solid economic growth and interest rates coming down. We think, you know, one of, well, it's probably too early, but one of the stories for this year is going to be that switch away from uh, the dominance. Doesn't necessarily mean to say they're going to do poorly, but away from the dominance of those very big technology names 
back to a broader group of more traditional type businesses as the economy grows. And that's, that's I guess, a, a function of the relative valuation and the relative return profile between, if you call them value or traditional assets and growth assets, um, and there being a shift yeah. um, of capital from one to the other. Uh, Microsoft just took out the mantle of being the largest company in the world off Apple, which is an interesting shift and I guess is another sign that um, they found new avenues for growth in an environment where um, continuing strength and growth is a positive. Um, and um, uh, which I think, um, you know, is a sign that people are willing to pay for that, um, that strength of um, a business model and, um, and then, you know, in Microsoft's case, that incredible breadth of um, the innovation that it has and so forth. As Apple does too, of course, but just um, obviously the market views it slightly differently. Uh, other markets, so developing markets like Japan, which is a lot of developed market, but Japan's had a very interesting year and um, other developing markets uh, and emerging markets have had a more challenging year. Talk through where that's coming from and what's driving Japan's, I guess, resurgence. Yeah, I think it's interesting um, how, uh, again, disparate the views are. Japan is very much the market du jour today. Um, it has been uh, a market which went back for so many years. It basically, again, because you had an economy which was facing, it did have deflation for many years and GDP growth was anemic at best. Uh, <clears throat> however, you know, really over the last 10 years, and this has been a 10-year process and it's probably another 10 years to go, the Japanese have made a very concerted effort to increase uh, the focus or ensure that the shift of corporate Japan and listed companies shifted from internally for the benefit of the business or the, the employees uh, towards you know, making sure the business was working for stakeholders, the owners. Uh, so they've made a number of changes over many years in terms of um, <clears throat> around their cross-shareholdings, around their board, having independent members on the board and majority independent members on the board and various uh, other aspects like that, all which you know, are slow-moving but have definitely moved uh, the, the management of those businesses closer towards what we'd call a sort of a Western-style um, optimization, profit optimization focus. One of the ones more recently, which is I think is really um, quite uh, aggressive, actually is probably the right word, is the Tokyo Stock Exchange has brought in a new rule is if a company has uh, um, an inquiry or you know, an offer to be purchased by a, another business, if that offer is above the current share price, effectively they have to open the books to that potential bidder. Um, you know, New Zealand, for example, you know, generally would go to the board and they would sort of make a view as to yes, no, you know, we think this is worthy, we should open open up, or no, we don't think it's worthy. In Japan, the board effectively no longer has that choice. If it's more than the current share price, they need to do that. And you know, that <clears throat> ultimately you would expect will actually encourage more and more M and A activity in that area, and, and that's positive for that market. So, yeah, very much. You know, global investors are continue to pick up on that theme, and uh, Japanese shares have done particularly well of late. At the other extreme, uh, the Chinese share market is basically hated by offshore investors. Um, <clears throat> yeah, again, yeah, the the core of that is for probably for strong reasons that yeah, definitely the their property companies have had, are going through, for want of a better word, their own GFC type process where you know, housing has a long road to go. Um, <clears throat> and the economy is, you know, by their standards, quite slow. So there are plenty of issues there. And the share market has been down, in the case of the Chinese share market, sort of three years in a row. Uh, or, yeah, more slightly more extreme, if you look at Hong Kong, that's now down four years in a row. And you know, for us, valuation alone is not sufficient. You know? Just because a valuation market is expensive doesn't mean it can't go up further and vice and the other way around. But what is interesting, again, sort of using those historic analogies and looking back through time, in the case of Hong Kong, 
it's very rare for a and and a major share market. In fact, even some minor share markets, it's very rare for markets to have more than four years down. In fact, even four years down is is very rare. Uh, you can go to markets that have had you know, basically wars or major um, you know, economic implosions that are longer than that. But it's actually, yeah, it, it's really hard to find a market that's been down five years in a row. So in, in that sense, <clears throat> very much markets are about, they're, in, in, they're about, or the question we try to ask is, what is in the price? And, you know, it, go back a couple of years, you know, late um, 2022. And, you know, to be, to be frank, we kind of didn't uh, see this properly in terms of uh, how negative the market had got on US shares. But clearly, you know, that was in the price because, you know, despite the economy still being pretty weak, shares went up because they'd already priced in all that weakness. If we look at something like China or Hong Kong, it does say to us that actually, you know, um, potentially all of that negativity is now in the price and actually it might be quite well. Valuations are super low. Market is very negative about it. That might be a good reason to uh, for that to be a, to have quite a positive return. So if I'd sort of say anything, probably the outlier this year is actually, you know, the end of this year we – Generally, people might be surprised how well China, the Chinese share market does or how well the Hong Kong share market does. At this point, we're, we're not underweight those markets. We're flat to our benchmark. Still think it's probably a bit early to be in there in size, but it's something we're watching pretty closely. With Japan, it's um, fascinating how corporate governance changes can lead to comp- so much more confidence, and that translates to obviously more capital flowing in and buoying asset prices and I mean if you think about it if you're a Norwegian pension fund or something and you're wanting to invest in um, in you know Japan and you're looking at the companies there and you're realizing that actually it's it's really hard um, to, to, to make that investment given the corporate governance risks that apply if those are lifted then um, yeah. suddenly uh, you know the business franchises that you're buying you know there's a lot of really incredible businesses within that economy. Well, again, I think, you know, to sort of take that point, you know, because the their economy's had basically 30 years since late 1980s where it's gone backwards, you've got a lot of business, a lot of M&A activity that just has not happened. Yep. Um, so some sectors, you know, where globally you might have three or four or five players, they might have 20 players and, and there's a natural process where uh, M&A should reduce that over time. Maybe that will lead to the Chinese government revisiting how it looks at these things a little bit and, um, in support of uh, foreign capital. Um, okay, so let's just touch on um, bonds and um, bond investors. Obviously, we, um, uh, in order to grow your capital through time, you need to be invested in the share market um, or other growth-type assets. But um, depending on your age and stage and, and, um, and other factors, uh, uh, income-producing assets like bonds and obviously term deposits and cash um, play an important role in diversifying your portfolio and generating a steady income. So bond investors um, have had a, a difficult um, couple of years after as interest rates went up, and that's obviously hit the capital value of the bonds. And, um, and it's probably fair to say bond investors generally aren't used to um, negative returns in bond portfolios, which... Um, uh, as I get, you know, they tend to be less volatile than shares. Now, though, with rates higher um, and the outlook for them to decline it through time, that's a more positive environment for bond investors. How do you think about that? I, I think you've kind of summed it up. Yeah. Ultimately, in terms of as you go through the economic cycle, the point where you really want to own bonds is where interest rates are high and that interest rate rising cycle has come to an end. Uh, you know, if we go back <clears throat> a year, you know, generally interest rates were relatively high, but we still had a period where they were moving higher. And that, you know, the way that works is that creates a, a capital loss. So you have your, your one year of income from your, your coupon, say 4%, and if you have a 5% capital loss because interest rates have moved higher, you're back to minus one. Think about it this year, though, if you're starting at 4 or 5% and you know, the expectation is a capital gain, 
it's going to be four or five percent plus a positive number. So you know, generally in these environments, you know, in the case of sort of New Zealand's last two major interest rate declines, 2007 and 2014, in both cases in that sort of over a two-year period, in those time, in those examples, you know, bonds delivered somewhere closer to sort of 20%, 15, 20%, more sort of equity-like numbers. And, and really that's a reflection because you have that original yield and essentially you, you know, you've, say you've locked in 5% and then the competing best available option is three and a half. So you have an asset that's worth more at that point. And I think that sort of also highlights, yeah, we don't necessarily know that's going to be the case this time, but interest rates have gone up very fast. If you look back through time, it's actually surprising how quickly interest rates have come down in terms of um, the OCR and things like that. So, yeah, history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it does often rhyme. So there is an there is a potential actually that whilst you know, again the Reserve Bank is saying interest rates won't come down for a long time, that actually it happens much faster than people think, and especially if you're in cash at that point, waiting for better investment periods, um, yeah, that cash is going to start paying you less. One uh, and again it's a little bit of a odd um, comment, but one comment uh, that I did hear over the over the summer break is that people sort of when markets are uncertain people go to cash to until markets settle down the reality is that you know, instead of markets settling down they actually often settle up so that is the challenge there is that if you know, once people are willing to move out of cash um, markets generally be it bonds or shares are often higher than they were when they started but generally you know our outlook for most asset classes is pretty positive and with a strong economy supporting businesses too, you know, default risk and um, some of the other risks that bond investors tend to face um, are lower than, you know, and I suspect that's being seen in how the credit spreads are, um, uh, are set up at the moment. Um, but, I mean, as rates come down though too, we've got, you know, if you're an investor and looking for income assets, you're going to have to um, get used to having lower returns. On the other hand, once you, um, if you sell your bond or it matures, then you're going to be reinvesting at whatever it is, three and a half percent now, not six percent. So um, there's a capital gain there on the one hand, but then you're facing another challenge too. Yeah, which is, I guess, why um, fund managers like um, like uh, NZ Funds exists, finding um, good opportunities for bond investors and active management that supports that. Okay, so um, we've covered a lot of things. Last two quick things: commodities. We've had a difficult run over the last wee while, and um, in some areas, and, and I guess in some has, some have gone up, but they play an important part um, in NZ Funds portfolio. We believe that um, a small in the growth component, a small um, allocation to commodities can act as a genuine diversifier and generate um, uh, um, additional returns through time. How how um, how are you? You know, what what commodity holdings are we currently? Um, uh, including in our growth portfolio, and then I might lump um, unfairly, but I'll lump within it. But uh, as a, a, the idea of genuine diversifier, digital assets, and Bitcoin, um, where are they sitting within our portfolio, and how do you view the outlook through twenty twenty four? Yeah, um, interesting. You lump it together because that is kind of the way we think of it. Yeah, you know, we do see sort of crypto assets and especially Bitcoin, the key ones, Bitcoin and Ethereum, as being sort of commodity like instruments, and uh, increasingly sort of certainly in Bitcoin's case gold-like uh, generally our exposures at this point are focused on that sort of precious metal space you know, gold and crypt uh, and and Bitcoin less so in the, the industrial metals or things like that uh, as an interesting side we don't have any positions at the moment but again one thing that has been really interesting with negativity around China being so high is that actually you know, the Chinese share market's had a very difficult time, but actually some of their key imports, industrial imports and commodity imports being iron ore and copper, have actually remained remarkably robust. Yeah, it, it, copper, 50% of the world's copper um, demand comes out of China. So if the Chinese economy was really struggling, it would be odd that copper is uh, prices remaining robust. So that's an area we're doing a bit of work on is for the year ahead. 
In terms of the precious metal side, again, yeah, I, I suppose at its simplest, our view is that uh, that is something typically which is can be quite challenged by higher interest rates. Think of gold and and to a degree, yeah, even Bitcoin. It has no inherent yield. Yeah, if you buy gold now, it doesn't generate a dividend, doesn't pay a coupon. Yeah, just sits there. Uh, if interest rates are one percent, yeah, you don't care. There's no real opportunity cost. If interest rates are five percent or more, there's a real opportunity cost to doing that. So there is there's pressure on that. Um, <clears throat> and you know that would have said to us actually, if we look back through time, generally there's quite a tight relationship between the gold price and interest rates, or to be more specific. Uh, real interest rates, so interest rates after subtracting inflation. It's quite a close relationship or inverse relationship there. Um, interestingly, that broke down quite uh, significantly in early 2022, really as the, the war in Ukraine started. And what happened there is, if you remember, you know, central bank reserves you know, are generally held in different currencies and some gold. The Western nations, or particularly the US, froze a lot of Russian reserves that were in their accounts. That really what that did is it did force or did uh, encourage, I think it's probably the right word, a number of the central banks around the world to up their level of gold purchases for their, their um, country's reserves. And broadly, about 3,000 uh, tonnes of gold are produced every year. Ultimately, central bank purchases went from sort of 500 tonnes to 1,000 tonnes. So you now have a situation where uh, they are you know, basically taking a third of all gold produced. It goes, it never really hits the market now. Um, so that demand supply dynamic is positive for gold, we think. You know, there's just not as much of it around. Uh, two, also interest rates are high. And you know, now that that additional demand has sort of worked its way through the system and is now sort of understood, that relationship with interest rates is reasserting itself. So if we have, a, and we do have a positive view that interest rates are likely to fall, that should be positive for the gold price. Um, in a similar way, you know, if we go back to the heady days of uh, you know, 2020, 2021, you know, when Bitcoin went to sort of 70,000 um, <clears> and had a massive run up and then came down aggressively, Really, that was highly correlated with risk assets. So basically, yeah, technology stocks, NASDAQ, if they went up, Bitcoin went up. Um, one of the, I, I suppose, one of the core tenets of Bitcoin is that it is fixed supply. It is like gold in that sense. There's, yeah, there is a fixed num number of Bitcoins out there. So from that demand supply perspective, yeah, it should have, theoretically, um, a, a similar uh, should show similar dynamics to gold. Didn't in that 2020-21 period. From about sort of, yeah, the middle of 22, late 22, it did start to display a much closer relationship with gold. Didn't follow up share markets when they initially rose. Uh, and that sort of says to us, you, yeah, maybe some of the froth has come out of that space and actually uh, uh, some interesting long-term dynamics are there. The other one for us in that space is again coming back to that demand supply discussion. Recently, you've seen um, 11 spot Bitcoin ETFs uh, approved in the US. So essentially, Bitcoin, uh, ETFs that will buy Bitcoin itself rather than, say, futures or something like that. Uh, and importantly, you know, whilst there are 11, basically two big ones one run by BlackRock, which is iShares, and another one run by Fidelity. And yeah, what that does mean is that for a US investor, and especially a number of sort of, yeah, it will basically, yeah, for, for a US retail investor or a small um, uh, institutional investor, they can essentially now Bitcoin as easy as they do any other share in America. Uh, and they're set up to do that. And we'd expect, you know, one of the aspects that we find interesting about commodities generally is that relative to other, you know, the, the big investment markets of shares and bonds, Commodity markets are very small. So when markets, when <clears throat> when the broader markets become interested in commodities, definitely uh, that's demand that's felt. And we would expect that as you go forward, it may take some time, but the demand from small investors and medium-sized, you know, small institutions in the US 
even if they're just putting 1% or 2% of their portfolio into uh, to Bitcoin, that's a big number. So we would expect there is that really interesting demand supply balance that's coming through in, in both crypto and gold over the, over the coming year. It's a new wedge of demand, if you think about yeah. it, which didn't previously exist. And um, I guess it's time will tell the size of that demand, but it, uh, uh, there's a lot of money in 401ks and other um, private portfolios, which now can access Bitcoin and I guess in a way that it couldn't before. So it's, yeah, it's it is, easy, it's cheap, yeah. etc. Very good. All right, Mark. Um, thank you very much. There's lots of good stuff in here. Um, I'm excited about this year and watching it all play out and obviously doing our part for our clients. Um, any closing thoughts that you want to share on the direction of things? Um, otherwise, we'll wrap it up. Um, I think, you know, again, probably just to summarize, we do think you know, we've been through a process where the global economy is healing, even the domestic economy is healing. That will still take some time, but markets are forward-looking and they tend to price in um, good news in the future now. So we think ultimately it will be a positive year. Coming back to the elections, they are ultimately positive, but they are going to create some noise. So at the same time, I think, yeah, it is not unlikely that we sit here at some point of the year and share markets globally might be down 10%. That's not an unusual outcome. We just think it's about being there for that journey and, and as that journey gets towards the end of the year, I think it'll be a good one for markets. And I guess investors, us included, we all need to remember we have long time horizons. So 10% this way or that way um, over a 10, 15, 20 year period is not that significant really, is it? Exactly. Fantastic. Have a great week, everyone. And um, I look forward to speaking with you soon. Thanks. This has been The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme, the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advice Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.